You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the newsroom to you live. Welcome to First Look, Washington Post Live's one-stop shop for news and analysis. I'm Jonathan Capehart, opinion writer for the Washington Post. A lot of healthcare, in, a lot of healthcare news uh, in the news this week, including the news late Thursday of the hospitalization of former President Bill Clinton in California for a non-COVID-related infection. His doctors say he is quote, on the men and that they hope he will, they will have him go home soon. Meanwhile, here in Washington, the news is all about COVID. Here to talk about it all is Yasmin Abu Talib. She is a healthcare, I'm sorry, health policy reporter at The Post. Yasmin, welcome back to First Look. Thanks for having me today. All right. Yesterday, an FDA advisory panel voted unanimously to endorse Moderna booster shots for the same groups as they previously gave authorization to Pfizer for. Those are the folks who are 65 years and older, high risk, um, their work exposure. Does that mean uh, Moderna boosters are approved? What's next? No. Yeah, it still needs to go through a couple more steps. This whole process is is pretty confusing. So this was an FDA advisory panel making this unanimous recommendation that the Moderna booster should be approved uh, for the uses that you laid out. Next, the FDA will have to decide whether it wants to follow the advisory panel's recommendation, which it typically does. So I largely expected that they'll follow that panel's recommendation. And then a CDC advisory committee will decide whether they think it should be approved. And this is where we saw a little bit of controversy over the discussion with the Pfizer boosters because they recommended the Pfizer booster, but for different groups than the FDA. It seems like maybe it'll, it will have been resolved for Moderna. The data was was pretty similar for the that that it was for the Pfizer booster. Uh, but last time we did see a bit of a split between the FDA advisory committee and the CDC advisory committee. So it's still, and then the CDC director will decide whether she wants to follow the her advisory committee's recommendation. Last time she overruled them on one element of it. So there, this will still play out for about another week. And another week. So and that's Moderna. We've already. Pfizer booster shot already approved, Moderna booster shot on its way to approval. Now let's talk J&J because data came out from an NIH study showing that people who got a got the single dose Johnson & Johnson vaccine appear to get a stronger antibody response from Pfizer or Moderna. But yes, my question is, is J&J seeking approval for its own booster? Yeah, this this whole process is a little bit confusing. That's the um, discussion that's and the vote that's going to be up today. Um, and I think it's a it's a still not quite clear how it's going to play out. The only thing that the FDA advisory committee is going to vote on today is whether to recommend a J and J booster. So yes, the company is seeking authorization for its booster. And I think it's expected that the committee will recommend the J&J booster because people are expecting it and want to get it. But like you said, the NIH study showed that recipients of the J&J vaccine actually did much better if they received an mRNA booster, whether from Pfizer or Moderna, and Moderna seemed to have the best results. There was, I think, a 76-fold increase in antibody levels for people who got J&J and then got Moderna as a booster compared to a four-fold increase if they got a J&J booster. There are all these caveats with the data. It's a small study. These uh, recipients were only studied for 15 days post-vaccination, so we don't really know what the long-term effects are. But it does raise this question of 
whether there's going to be a real use of the J&J booster in the United States. I think it will likely be authorized, but it does seem like given the results of the study, given already some of the hesitation around the J&J vaccine because the FDA paused its use for a little while, um, some of these rare side effects that come up, the fact that it's a little bit less effective than the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines, whether most J&J recipients are going to seek out an mRNA booster, whether or not the panel eventually decides to vote on that. You know, Yasmin, as you were speaking, I was I was thinking, you know, the COVID um, pandemic is not just a United States pandemic. This is something that the world is grappling with. And I'm just wondering, um, what kind of an impact do these FDA approvals, both for the vaccine, but also for these boosters have on the worldwide response to the pandemic? That's a great question, and it's a, it's important to talk about because the booster debate has brought up a lot of these issues around what responsibility does the U.S. have to the rest of the world? Is it fair for Americans to be getting third shots when so much of the world hasn't even gotten a first shot? Um, there are these questions about equity, whether it's fair for wealthier countries to get ready to distribute third and fourth shots in some cases in the case of Israel, while most of the world has yet to receive its first shot. So there are these questions about, you know, is it unfair for wealthy countries to be buying up more doses for boosters? There are a lot of reports about how the wealthy countries have bought up a lot of the global supply, especially of the most effective vaccines, and what they're going to do about distributing them. There are a lot of complaints that it hasn't been fast enough. Recently, we've seen reports that U.S. government officials who played a huge role in developing Moderna's vaccine and gave them billions of dollars to help develop it are unhappy with their global commitments that they've sold most of their doses to wealthy countries. So the, the pandemic is not over until it's resolved in the rest of the world. As we saw when it started, this started in China and within a month spread to the entire globe. And I think the concern is if you keep hoarding vaccine doses in these wealthy countries and it's allowed to spread in, in less wealthy countries, we're going to keep dealing with new variants. The concern is that there's eventually going to be a variant that can evade the vaccines. So until you get the whole world vaccines, we can't really put an end to this. Um. <laughs> Sorry, yes, me. I literally just sneezed as you were oh, as you were ending your your answer there. Quickly, um, you uh, you and Dan Diamond wrote a story this week um, about how the the White House is looking to Robert um, Califf, I believe is how his last name is pronounced, as the next FDA commissioner. Who is he, and and why is the pre why does the president want him to lead the agency? So Robert Califf is a long-term uh, long hand at the FDA. He was the commissioner for the last year of the Obama administration. He served for less than a year as the commissioner at the end of Obama's term. But he, the important thing is he passed through the Senate 89 to 4. The interesting thing here is he is considered a relatively safe pick. He knows the agency. He served in various positions before he became the commissioner. I think he's going to be viewed as a steady hand, if not a super exciting pick. Um, we know that the Biden administration was vetting women and people of color hoping to, you know, uphold Biden's pledge that he would diversify his cabinet. Uh, but I think ultimately what they wanted, because the FDA is going through such a tumultuous time and has so much on its plate over the next several months, including approval of pediatric vaccines for COVID, uh, they wanted someone who knows and understands the agency. Um, the interesting thing here is while he did pass the Senate pretty easily under Obama, there were some key Democratic holdouts that I think will be interesting to watch um, this time when he comes up before the Senate, especially because 
obviously Biden is trying to negotiate an infrastructure package and the massive reconciliation package. Uh, Joe Manchin did not um, vote for Robert Califf when he came up in 2015. Bernie Sanders voiced serious concerns about him. Richard Blumenthal voiced concerns about him. So, uh, and, and we'll see if Republicans will sort of just give Biden this one or make it very difficult, even though they approved Califf just a few years ago. So mm -hmm. he is viewed as a relatively safe pick, but I don't know how easy it's going to be. You know, I know when you said he's a safe pick and I wrote down safe pick, but because of the opposition um, from Senators Manchin, Sanders, I think you mentioned you mentioned Blumenthal. Uh, we got less than uh, 90 seconds left. So now the key question is, how is the delay in confirming a permanent FDA chief impacting the work at the agency itself? Or is it? Well, right now they have an acting director, Janet Woodcock, who most of the agency really like. She's a steady hand. She knows the agency well. And what we learned in our reporting was that a lot of um, agency officials were actually hoping she would stay. She's kind of non-confirmable right now because of some of her past work with opioid workers. Joe Manchin has voiced serious concerns about her. So she was not viewed as someone who could really stay in the position long term, even if they wanted her to. Uh, but this is a really difficult time for the FDA. They've got three years worth of work that they've had to clip through in a matter of months. They still have really big questions ahead of them. They still need to figure out all these booster questions. Uh, they're going to uh, potentially at the end of this month look at um, approving COVID vaccines for ages 5 to 11 for the Pfizer vaccine. Um, you know, the pandemic is not over. So this is a difficult time for the agency. And I think not having a permanent director and not having that stability can hinder its work. And I think people just need to know that they can continue to move forward with the work and sort of clip through these really thorny difficult questions. Yasmin Abu Talib, health policy reporter at the at the Post. Thank you very much for coming back to First Look and um, thank you for knocking out of the park my uh, my curveball question to you about the global uh, that that global question um, I, I asked you. Have a great weekend. Thank you. We're going to keep the conversation going with our opinions roundtable in just a moment. Stay with us. Let's go to the opinion side of the Washington Post, where we will find my colleagues, Eugene Robinson and Charles Lane, or as I'm just going to call them, Chuck and Gene. <laughs> Welcome back <laughs> to First Look. Good morning. Good morning, Jonathan. Good morning, Good morning Jonathan. Gene. All right, Chuck, I'm going to start with morning, you. And we're going to let's start talking about the January 6th Select Committee, um, which announced yesterday that it will move to hold Steve Bannon in criminal contempt for not complying with his subpoena, something that his not complying is not a surprise to me. But I think a lot of people are surprised that the committee moved very quickly to hold him in, in criminal contempt. Do you think Bannon, who Trump pardoned earlier this year, will actually end up in handcuffs? Huh. Well, criminal contempt is the heavy ammunition of subpoena enforcement, which has rarely been used in the past. The alternative, of course, is a civil fine. Um, but the advantage the committee has this time is that the, the Justice Department, which would have to do the prosecution, is very sympathetic to them under Merrick Garland. So I think Steve Bannon has reason to be concerned. Of course, what he's going to try to do is litigate his resistance to this subpoena as long as he can on this claim of executive privilege, which... Uh, let's just be polite, is a pretty adventuresome legal claim, given that it relates to a former president 
uh, who is now a former president, and conversations that occurred when Bannon himself was not an official of the White House. But, you know, even far-fetched legal claims take time to litigate. And I suppose, like everyone else on the Trump side of this, his, his ultimate goal is to just try and stall the committee as long as possible. And, you know, installing the committee, I mean, the calendar is key here because, Gene, correct me if I'm wrong, or even Chuck, if you know this answer, there's a new Congress that's going to come into come into Washington by January 2023. Aren't they running up? Isn't the January 6th committee running up against a, a clock issue here? Because if Bannon and others who, you know, will find out whether they comply with the subpoenas like Mark Meadows, the former chief of staff, um, that if they litigate this in the way that Chuck was talking about, that they could run out the clock. Well, you know, there, yes, there is a deadline. Uh, you have a calendar right. Uh, but uh, I think that's why one reason why the committee went straight to um, the criminal referral uh, is, is going that route um, to and not to sort of um, mess around. Uh, the committee has to avoid adding to the delay that the that that the, those who are subpoenaed um, can create anyhow, uh, and mm -hmm. so the committee needs to move rapidly. And I think it it has you know in this case certainly it has moved rapidly. Um, also, by going for a criminal referral on Bannon, um, that gives an incentive uh, to the others who are subpoenaed in this first round, uh, perhaps to, to negotiate and to find a way to uh, talk to the committee. But Gene, given, I, I mean, we all have followed um, these folks during the Trump years. Um, we mm -hmm. kind of have a sense of, of who they are and how they might think. Do you really think that these, um, that this criminal contempt charge sends a signal to someone like Mark Meadows that, hey, you should probably cooperate and, and not face what Steve Bannon is facing? Um, well, you know, it, I, look, I don't know what's going on in Mark Meadows' head. I mean, I've, I've seen some reports and hints that um, he or his representatives and, and um, representatives of Cash Patel and another of the subpoenas have been willing at least to have you know, put out feelers to the committee and that, that maybe talk about talking um, uh, <laughs> in some way. Uh, and keep in mind that there's another meter that's cooking, which is, which is legal fees, um, which can mount um, very rapidly and mount really high uh, when you're fighting this sort, of, uh, this sort of battle. And so are they going to have to go out and fundraise or, uh, you know, try to raise money? Um, uh, to, to pay what could be ruinous legal fees to avoid uh, having to testify, um, uh, it, it, it would be rational to to say, well, maybe you know we can, I can, maybe we can come to some sort of agreement about what I can talk about and what I can't talk about, uh, and uh, you know, rather than face that process. Mm -hmm. You know, um, I, I mentioned, Chuck, the, this question of calendar being an issue, but also I'm wondering if there's an appetite issue. It, it, do you see any kind of appetite from the Biden administration, i.e. the attorney general, to use the full extent of the law to go after Donald Trump 
and his allies, or do you think they're too concerned about possible political blowback from using the full extent of the law to hold these folks accountable? Well, I think that will be a judgment call. There are already reports that uh, Merrick Garland is uh, looking for a little more discretion in terms of the sentencing of the actual perpetrators of January 6th to sort of separate a minor from major offenders. But in general, I think this January 6th event was such a watershed, such a terrible uh, threat to our basic institutions that if you're going to use the heavy ammo on anything, I think the Justice Department would use it on this or at least think about it. But, you know, there, the, the ultimate public interest here is not in having Steve Bannon go to jail. The ultimate public interest is in getting the facts. And so if there's any way at all to uh, negotiate a settlement which will get the truthful and one, one hopes it will be truthful testimony of this group of people, that's what's in the public interest. I would just say, though, we know of instances where people in high-profile cases have gone to jail rather than to testify. Uh, there was uh, one of Bill Clinton's friends in Arkansas who went to jail right. for many months. Uh, one of the alleged suppliers of Barry Bonds' alleged steroids went to jail rather than talk. So this is the ultimate test of loyalty to Donald Trump. And who knows, maybe they're afraid uh, not to uh, go to jail on his behalf. We'll see. <laughs> you know, Gene, I would, I would love your, um, to get your thoughts on that. And also wondering, you know, the idea, sure, holding Steve Bannon in criminal contempt, you know, that, that fine. But the attorney general is going to have to make, is going to have to decide whether or not to prosecute Trump allies and maybe even Donald Trump himself. And you know, in in an interview with Kara Swisher at the New York Times, uh, Congressman Congressman Adam Schiff uh, said that you know, no, quote, nothing is off the table when it comes to whether Donald Trump um, could be prosecuted. And so, Gene, should he, Donald Trump, be prosecuted if the evidence is there that he should be? And should we be concerned, as I would suspect the attorney general is, about not only the, the optics and the politics of prosecuting a former president, but what that might mean in terms of precedent, in terms of the Justice Department prosecuting a former president? Um, I, I, I think the answer to all your questions is yes, um, we should be concerned about all of that. I mean, no one should be above the law, obviously. That's a bedrock principle. Um, I, I know that, that Attorney General Garland is um, deeply, um, uh, deeply cares about um, uh, that, the, that the Justice Department be perceived as uh, apolitical. Um, that it not be seen as uh, a Republican or a Democratic uh, institution, but uh, but an institution that is interested uh, in the pursuit of justice. Period, uh, and uh, and and that uh, imperative um, could run up against um, the imperative to act if it is found uh, that. 
attacking um, members of the administration or members of Congress or indeed the president himself uh, appear to have uh, committed prosecutable crimes. Um, that question of, of precedent is very, uh, it, 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 it has to be on everybody's mind uh, because uh, we don't want to get into a situation where uh, whenever there's a change of party uh, in control of the White House, uh, we see the, you know, all the, <laughs> the former officials from the other party, uh, you know, brought up on charges. And, uh, you know, I've, I've seen how that sort of thing can work um, when I was a foreign correspondent in South America, and that's, that's not where we want to go. Um, but, you know, January 6th wasn't something that happened, um, uh, that happens in this country all the time. Uh, it was a uh, singular event. Uh, and um, and we have to keep that in mind too, as uh, as everybody goes forward here. It was uh, uh, we can't forget that day. It was something we we've literally never seen before, uh, mm-hmm. and was was we've never seen our democracy um, threatened in that way. An attempt to stop Congress from fulfilling its, its you know its its duty, this necessary step of certifying. The results of a presidential election uh it's unheard of here and 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 so you know we have to first find what happened um establish the facts and and then we can start talking about and deciding on the implications of moving forward with prosecution chuck i don't know if you have a reaction to that if not i'm going to move on to to president biden's agenda um <clears throat> and you know you know, he's got this, this, this very ambitious agenda, while at the same time that he's trying to get through the Democrats, <laughs> both houses of Congress, while at the same time his poll numbers are dropping, even among fellow Democrats. So do you think that there is a single issue that could be causing the president's poll numbers to drop like this? Well, it, it's a combination of things, obviously. He got some very bad luck with the Delta variant, which um, kind of knocked the props out from under what was his strong suit, which was the response to the coronavirus. Uh, by the way, I thought Yasmin did an excellent job of summarizing what's going on there. And the word that popped out in my mind was confusion, because even in the good faith efforts to grapple with this now, the public is getting a lot of unavoidably, perhaps, mixed messages. And I think that's undermining him. I think the spectacle in Afghanistan was also very, very damaging. So you put that together with inflation and a few other things, and yeah, he's having a a popularity swoon. And that gives the Democrats in Congress jitters. Those who are in swing districts, you know, are concerned, will I be sticking my neck out for the agenda of somebody who's not going to be popular uh, when I'm on the ballot in 2022? I think there, even without that, though, Jonathan, there would have been a lot of trouble herding the cats in Congress with such a narrow majority on the one hand and with so many uh, interests competing for this big pile of money on the other. Uh, And it's going to be very, very difficult to square this circle. I have always thought that eventually they will pass a bill. But Kirsten Sinema just planted her flag Uh, yesterday and said, unless we vote first on the hard infrastructure bill, I'm not even going to consider the uh, social and climate reconciliation package. 
boy, that was a very, very strong uh, negative signal for those who believe that this thing can ultimately pass. I still believe it ultimately will, but it's hard. You know, Chuck, I'm glad you brought up Senator Sinema um, because, you know, her, that flag she planted, to my mind, would be, I don't know, reasonable if we knew what she wanted specifically in the reconciliation in the reconciliation deal and 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 gene i mean this is the thing that's driving a lot of people crazy and that is democrats are not fighting with republicans over the reconciliation bill and what should be in it and how much should be spent they're fighting with each other over over what should be in it one of the things that progressives are urging Speaker Pelosi to do is to keep all of the proposed policies in, pre in, in President Biden's Build Back Better uh, economic plan, but keep them in place for, for fewer years to reduce costs. You know, I've, I had a, a, a conversation with Congressman, Congresswoman Susan Delbene of Washington, who has been out there saying, you know what, could we just do a few big things really well? And then, and then move on to the to the next thing. I would love to get your view on that and the likelihood um, that Speaker Pelosi will accede to the progressives' call for let's do everything, but let's just do it for a shorter period of time. Well, um, you know, first of all, the Democrats are arguing with each other because um, they're. They kind of have to represent the entire political spectrum right now, or the entire political spectrum that's engaged uh, in uh, in these ideas and in this legislation. Republicans won't even vote for stuff that they've supported in the past now. Um, uh, they won't cooperate in any way. Um, uh, they did on the hard infrastructure bill, but on, on the rest of the stuff, including measures that, that, that they um, that some members have supported or spoken favorably of in the past, um, they're just not going to participate. So the Democrats have to work it out, and there are different views in the party. Um, there just are, and so so they've got to come with these tiny majorities. They've got to come to agreement, uh, and that agreement has got to include Joe Manchin and, and Kirsten Cinema, and it's got to include Bernie Sanders and the Squad, uh, because. Uh, I, Neither Chuck Schumer nor Nancy Pelosi can can afford to have basically any members um, uh, drop out of the coalition. So it's messy. And and um, do they do it for fewer years? Do they do fewer things? Probably a combination of those two. But I I still believe what um, Chuck said. I think eventually they will pass they will pass a bill because they will decide that in the end. Doing something is is better for everybody running for re-election uh, next year than doing nothing. Uh, um, just Chuck, very got, quickly, Jonathan. Yo, real, yeah, we got less than a minute. Go. Part of the issue here is the lack of uh, a signature issue in this bill. It has been identified more by its price tag of 3.5 trillion, which sounds scary, than by any standout benefit that people can hang their hats on, and I think that has caused them political problems. 
Right. I mean, even before I went on vacation, folks were talking about, Democrats were saying, hey, why are we focused on the price tag and not telling the American people what is actually in the bill? And of course, you know, someone tells me that something's going to cost $3.5 trillion, I'm going to say, you've lost your mind. But if you tell me that the $3.5 trillion is going to help me and my family, I might look at it a little more favorably. But we're going to be talking about this for a very long time, or at least until this thing gets passed, which Chuck, which Chuck Lane and Gene Robinson say will happen. It's just a matter of when. Gene Robinson, Chuck, Chuck Lane, we got to go. Thank you very much for coming back to First Look, and have a great weekend. You too, Jonathan. Thanks. Head to WashingtonPostLive.com to find more information about next week's interviews and to register. I'm Jonathan Capehart. Thank you for watching The Washington Post's First Look. Thanks for listening. For more information on our upcoming programs, go to WashingtonPostLive.com.